0: Welcome back to the cinema, folks. I sure hope you didn't lose your minds over that new humdinger of a film. But most importantly, welcome to AA CinemaCast, the most in-depth bi-weekly movie podcast hosted by two best friends, Mr. Anthony Dalpiaz and Mr. Adam Schwartz. Every other week, a new film, from Alien to Rear Window, and from The Muppets to Jurassic Park. Give it a listen, give it a like, and be sure to tell all your friends about AA CinemaCast.
1: Back to Double A Cinema Cast,
0: your weekly film fix.
1: <laughs> Hasn't really been weekly lately, it, but all
0: right. Uh, there's been a lot going on in the world. Um, yeah, it's been a it's been a little hectic. A little, little we got busy lives, and uh, getting even busier with, mm-hmm. with coronavirus stuff going around.
1: And and with all this awfulness going on in the world, we got a nice escape <laughs> to just. A fun, light movie called Snowpiercer.
0: Yes. Uh, this this is a 2013 film uh, from director Bong Joon-ho who recently uh, won uh, the Best Director Oscar and uh, his movie Parasite won Best Picture. So have an Oscar winner on our hands here. But yeah. Um, Snowpiercer. It is a well, how would you describe this movie, Anthony? I've seen this movie many times, and I have my own opinions, which we'll get into later, but this was the first time you'd seen it. What was, How would you describe this film?
1: I'd describe it as a dystopian movie. Mm-hmm. And it is... It's a dark one, that's for sure.
0: Yes. Um, It's a very strange concept for, like, a post-apocalyptic film, where... You have basically the rest, what remains of humanity, stuck on this train that is just riding around the globe
2: mm-hmm.
0: and not stopping. And that's, that's the movie, pretty much. Um, and the, there's a lot of heavy social commentary in this film.
1: Yeah, because, yeah. Well, first off, because all of the population of the world is on this train, and they're split into casts, pretty much, by car.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we start off at the very end of the train in what they call the tail section, and there we meet our our hero, or our, I don't know if I'd call him our hero, but our, our protagonist, um, <laughs> Curtis, um, played by Chris Evans who basically is the leader of this revolt against the front of the train or the head of the train. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a very dark, not the most uplifting film, but it, it also has very odd, like humor, like comedic moments in it as well.
1: Yeah. I had to break up all the dark, awfulness that's happening yeah you know what i was thinking when i first saw chris evans and jamie bell on screen next to each other
0: what'd you think i was
1: thinking oh two members of the fantastic four from different iterations
0: oh yeah i forgot about that yeah it's uh, it's kind of a little uh little marvel get together here little, yeah
1: cause I- chris I- evans played human torch in those first two fantastic four movies
0: mm-hmm. and
1: Jamie Bell played the thing in the what? 2015. Mm-hmm. I feel like, you know how there's the six degrees of Kevin Bacon.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: I haven't think of, even if you just look at the Marvel movies from the MCU, starting with two, like 2008 on, mm-hmm. I feel like that's such a web too. Cause a lot of times I'll see movies and be like, Oh, no way! Uh, that actor's in Doctor Strange. That actor's in Black Panther. Whoa!
2: And, and like,
1: like, do you think on set they ever talk about that stuff? Do you like? Do you think they had a conversation like, "Oh, <laughs> we're <both laughs> members of Fantastic Four.
0: Well, this one maybe, maybe, because this one came out in 2013. So Chris Evans had already played the Human Torch. I don't know if Jamie Bell had already been cast. Oh,
1: you're right. He
0: had in the, in the reboot at this point, but I'm sure there was already talks with his agent and he was like, Hey, I, uh, might be playing the thing. I don't know if you heard, <laughs> you know, uh,
2: yeah,
0: but yeah, we have, um, uh, Chris Evans and Jamie Bell, who is kind of his right hand man named, uh, Edgar. And yeah, they lead this revolution to basically move up through the train through various sections. Um, but along the way, we meet some very uh, colorful characters, you could say. Um, my personal favorite of this kind of ensemble that we meet is uh, Minister Mason, played by Tilda Swinton, who is kind of like...
1: Oh, that was Tilda Swinton?
0: Yeah. And it's... The wow. makeup is... And her acting is phenomenal. Um, She's kind of this, like like mousy librarian looking character who's kind of like the representative of Wilford, who is the leader owner operator of this train. Um, and she basically comes back to the tail section. When we first meet her to discipline one of the tail section members for not giving up his kid, for a quote medical inspection. Mm -hmm. Um, very like a lot of kind of, for lack of a better term, like very reminiscent of like gulags or even like concentration camps in Nazi Germany, like very like vague, you know, Oh, we need a medical check. We need to do this for reasons. Just comply or we'll kill you. Um, a very, yeah very dark um very dark stuff,
2: <laughs>
0: um but yeah, um so
1: yeah, this was a super dark movie,
2: but I feel like
1: oh, it was just I, I felt like it was so well done in that, like each scene was meaningful and mm-hmm. would play out. And, like, things that were said would play out later. Like, when <laughs> Chris, when Chris Evans, his character of Curtis, is talking to Gilliam, who's played by John Hurt. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning where Gilliam's talking about how uh, Jamie Bell's character Edgar, like, thinks the world of Curtis. And Curtis says, uh, basically, that he's naive or he shouldn't. And then you find <clears throat> out... oh. You find out later that Curtis almost ate Edgar when he was a baby.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, and he killed Edgar's mom.
0: Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very, so the, the, for, for some context, um, those of you who haven't seen the movie, of course, rocking and spoilers here. Um, but yeah, the, it's never clear how the tail sectioners got onto the train. Um, or if it was kind of like, this is the end of the world express, you know, get on now or, you know, freeze. Um, but yeah, like the, that monologue Chris Evans has talking about getting on the train and like the month without food crammed in the, the, the tail section. It just, it's such dark and bleak imagery and how people were eating. He's like we started with the weak, ate them first, and the the line he has of like, you know what I hate about myself? I know what people taste like, and I know that babies taste best. It's like, oh, oh. yeah, so
1: yeah, I was not expecting that.
0: <laughs> yeah, it it's it comes at the very end of the movie, so you have this like, you know, not standard per se, but, like, this, okay, revolution happening, uprising, got it, violence, people are dying along the way, and you get to the end, and it just punches you with this revelation of Chris Evans' character, and it just hits so hard. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah. Just a gut punch.
1: Yeah, that was... And then later, when he's talking to Gillian, and... Basically, throughout the movie, people keep telling Curtis that he's the one to lead him, lead them. That he's already their leader, and he's pushing that off. And he's he mentions to Gillian that he's he has he can't he still has both his arms. And you find out that uh, back in that first month when they were not get at the end of the train, when the, the people at the end of the train were not given any food, mm-hmm. they had to fend for themselves and eat what's around them, so people started cutting out their limbs and, like, selflessly, yeah, yeah. I guess, letting people have something to eat. And he tried, it looks like, because you even see he has a scar on his arm, and I think he says as much, but he couldn't do it. He didn't have the yeah. gumption.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. And I'm hearing like and Gilliam, even as a character, we get a plot twist with him where he's this older, almost kind of like sage, like character who Chris Evans or Curtis thinks he thinks of Gilliam as their leader, but everyone pretty much is like, yeah, Gilliam's our leader, but Curtis, you're our de facto, like you are pretty much who's really our leader. Um, and you think that Gilliam is with them the whole time. And you come to find out at the end that uh, Wilford like had regular conversations with Gilliam that no one, but those two knew about. And just
1: well, I think, well, the thing was, I think
0: we did know
1: about that because in that first scene or in that early scene where, the one guy's arm gets frozen and chopped off. That's true. He says to uh, John Hurt, Skillian says to, to witness character that mm-hmm. he needs to talk to Wilford.
0: Mm-hmm. I, well, I, I think it was more that he, people didn't know that they had a direct line to each other mm-hmm. because even Mason says like, well, you can talk to me and I'll tell Mr. Wilford. And he just kind of blows her off, like, no, that's not what I mean. Like, we need to talk on the phone talk. Um, Because we don't find out that that little Wilford logo in Gilliam's, like, hut, pretty much, is a phone until the very end. When the kind of egg delivery man (laughs) turns it around as well. Right. So, yeah. (sighs) Yeah a lot of social
1: commentaries here and it seems like so wilford he was obsessed with trains and creating this train that like would provide everything that you need and uh later on in that classroom where they show the educational video about wilford it says that he knew that the world was going to freeze and
2: yeah. that's
1: why he did it i i as a viewer, I don't... I think that... I call bullshit on that. I think <laughs> he just got lucky and then people are like, oh, he's a prophet. He's a savior. Mm-hmm. And it becomes very culty.
0: Yeah, we... Of all the scenes in the movie, the classroom scene is the most... Even though I've seen this movie, like, five or six times at this point, like, the classroom scene is still the most uncomfortable scene for me. Yeah. Just, it's... As you mentioned, like it's culty. It's very much like these kids are being indoctrinated to think of Wilford and the, and even the train as like this deity, this god that provides for all. And like it, yeah, it's yes. bleh. very creepy.
1: <laughs> yes, it is.
0: Um, but yeah, um, it it's a very mentioned like the he knew the world was going to to freeze and all that like i wonder though like if he if the character was smart enough of kind of like we know that he's a genius enough to build a train that lasts forever to a degree um but like if he was smart enough to realize like ah this will really screw up the planet or, as you said, he just got lucky and was like, ah, good thing my train runs forever. Because even the the video you were referencing talked about how it could withstand the Arctic and the desert. So if the Earth kept getting hotter, he'd still be able to survive on the train, even if it was super hot outside.
1: Oh, okay. I see.
0: So maybe he just got lucky then. But yeah. Um,
1: yeah. And with... Uh, with wilford my first thought when i saw that it was ed harris was is this guy just like always the dystopian future leader because he also played that like executive producer or like supervising director in the truman show
0: Mm -hmm. he was there he plays like one of the main bad guys in westworld which is another like futuristic, post-apocalyptic-ish, like, robot cowboys situation.
2: Yeah, that's his,
1: that's his go-to.
0: Yeah, I I remember I saw this movie my freshman year of college, and there was a, prof- a communication professor that I had who was really into, like, sci-fi movies. So I was yeah. like, you should have Snowpiercer, writing, I highly recommend it. And she told me about it after she had watched it, and she's like, and it got to the end. And they showed who Wilfred was, and I was like, of course it's Ed Harris. Of course he's the bad guy. Who else would it be? Right. But yeah. And like it's a really weird like situation of is you you there's the movie's very vague in its message of like, is Wilford the bad guy? Is Curtis the bad guy? Are they both the bad guys? Are they both good guys who are doing things their own? Like one's taking a more radical approach. Because at the end, it seems like they both have a desire to like save humanity. Where Chris Edward Curtis is more, everyone should be equal. Whereas Wilford is saying, you know, we could all be equal, but there's no order that way and it's a it's just the 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 battle of the ideologies at the end oh I
1: think Wilfred is totally the bad guy
0: <laughs> well it it's that strange moment where you see where if oh what's her name the um, the hacker's daughter um oh, Yoda. Y- yeah, where she comes in to get the matches from Curtis. Like, if she hadn't gone in there and hadn't seen the kid underneath the tile, would Curtis have accepted Wilford's offer? Because he initially, like, holds her back. Like, no, no.
2: Yeah. I'm
0: not going to let you do that. Um, so I wonder if, if he hadn't seen Timmy under the the tile, if he would have been like, yep, I'm the new Wilford. You know.
2: I think he might have.
0: Yeah. I think it's the, the moment where, and this one, like it, even as the viewer, it really hits because this movie is full of very unique sounds, visuals, like everything is so artistic and very unique. And when he's, when Wilfred tells Curtis, like, how, when was the last time you, you were alone? When have you been truly alone? You know, take your time. And he's just in that front of the train with the kind of cylinders going around him. Even as the viewer, you're kind of sitting there just like, oh, a moment to breathe. And it's like, yeah, if I was him, I'd be tempted to take this too, because I've just been stuck in this squalor and chaos of the back section and what I've just gone through to be told, like, you can live up here with peace and quiet just be calm it'd be tempting <laughs> but yeah uh, i love this movie i think this is such a such a great movie this, this is one of my like top five favorite movies of all time oh wow
1: i did yeah. not know you liked it that much
0: yeah this like i'm thinking of like grand budapest hotel i'm gonna lump all of all of star wars in as just one really long nine movie, movie. okay so
1: you said Grand Budapest Hotel, all of Star Wars, Snowpiercer, <laughs> Polar Express,
0: and uh, Jurassic-, Jurassic Park. Yeah.
1: He's <laughs> got a thing for trains. That's something I was thinking of while watching this movie. What if, if, there were, what if the train was the Polar Express? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Polar Express 2, end of days.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Curtis gets to the front, and it's Tom Hanks' conductor.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Opens up the door. Well, you're coming? (laughs) It's like, what?
1: (laughs) Can we agree that Grey, that guy who was shirtless for a lot of scenes with Surrender and Die tattoo on his arms, is the greatest of all time.
0: He was amazing. I like that he, his acting through basically just his facial expressions, you get a lot from that character, even though he has, like, barely any dialogue. Yeah. Um, how they have this, like, super muscular, like, athletic guy who's like, I'm gonna push... Gilliam around. Like he's Gilliam's, you know, wheelchair guy, but he's also this amazing martial artist and yeah, he's great.
1: Yeah. Like wow. he takes out that one big guy that they can't mm-hmm. get past. He yeah, he fights all those so many people, just takes him out. And then when um that one guy is about to stab Curtis, he
2: Stops
0: the knife with his hand. Oh. that that scene in particular just has me cringe every time. Where he like he's holding it back as he's about to like push it into his chest. The other guy, um, yeah. and you hear the like cracking in his like of the bones in his hand and the subtle like like squish you could say when it like hits his heart. And I'm just like, ugh. It's but yeah, he's great that I love the this movie has a lot of action scenes and very unique action scenes given that it's on a train so you only have so much room to work with um, yeah. and I love when the train's going around that big curve and Chris Evans and C- Curtis and his ensemble are like, heading through like the like hot tub room i guess like the pool room whatever and the one of the hitmen is shooting at them from across the curve as the train's turning ah love that that was great um and like the sauna fight scene was great the yeah uh this movie is so good i i think it's it's very, again, as you said, very dark, but it has those weird moments where, like, I don't know, I still don't know what the what the director was trying to say. Um, with like, when they, after the water section fight, where they have all the axes and the black hoods, like, they have that bit where they like cut into the fish. Uh-huh. And I was like, what is the point of the bloody fish? Alright, whatever.
1: Is um, <laughs> it supposed to be just intimidating?
0: I guess. And it was funny, I was looking at the IMDb trivia prior to recording this, and so this movie was produced um, by Harvey Weinstein, um, but the on well, the trivia... It says director Bong Joon-ho often clashed with producer Harvey Weinstein, who frequently interfered in order to create his version of the film. Among the many requests, the producer insisted of having the fish scene removed in favor of more action. Bong, who considered it his favorite shot in the film, was adamant to keep it in. He told the producer that he wanted to keep the shot for a personal reason, as a tribute to his late father, who was a fisherman. Upon hearing this, Weinstein said that family is very important to him, so he granted Bong to keep the shot in an interview, the director said, that was a freaking lie. My father was not a fisherman.
2: (laughs) 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 That's hilarious.
0: So, like, (laughs) it was like, no, no, we have to keep this in. (laughs) (laughs) The fisherman, oh, well, if that's the case, of course. Never, no, he wasn't a fisherman.
1: (laughs) This director just sounds like a person that I would love to hang out with. Like for his Oscar speech, didn't he say something about like how he was going to go drink?
0: Like every time he won an award at the Oscars, he was like, I want to be, I going to get more drunk tonight. And I'm like, yeah. this man's not going to wake up tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. This. Uh, yeah. Oh, uh, that's
1: hilarious.
0: The, there's this, I'll have to send you this, we'll put it on our Twitter Instagram, but there's a, like, a photo shoot Bong Joon-ho did, where he's, like, in this weird, like, backyard set, very clearly, like, astroturf, folding lawn chair, and, like, just straight blue background, Yeah. and he's, like, lounging around and posing, but he's wearing, like, a white dress shirt and a blazer, and it's the weirdest thing, this guy does not care what anyone thinks of him. It's great. Yeah.
1: That's a way to live your life. I admire uh, that.
0: Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's... a. Uh, it, it has this weird... Like, the fish scene... Like, the style of... The... I love the juxtaposition between everything from the tail section... And the the water section where everything's just gray, black, like dirty, and then you get through the water section into that first like upper class car in the like the greenhouse car. Yeah, and it's just just like
1: reading a book.
0: (laughs) Just a quick switch into like, and now how everyone else lives.
1: Right, that dichotomy, like those people who were having a rave, the classroom,
2: the uh,
0: when
1: they were getting their hair done, yeah, it was just, it felt so ridiculous.
0: Yeah. I I love when they get to, like, where the women are getting their hair done, that car in particular, because you have, like, the downstairs where it's, like, a lounge and a bar, then you go upstairs, and they have they're getting their hair done and everything. And it's it's very reminiscent of like the Hunger Games, like the capital fashion there in the in the Hunger Games. I was like, not sure if inspired or copied, but I'm like, I'm pretty sure I saw half these costumes in the first Hunger Games movie. <laughs> but yeah, um, and then it was it's interesting how you have like this industrial look for the from the back half, very modern like like super wealthy section and then it it was weird to me that the car right before you get to Wilford is the rave and drug car (laughs) yeah like I would have thought that would have come earlier but I guess that is like the ultimate sign of like wealth of like getting drunk Getting high, not caring about the world, and just living like pure ignorance. Mm-hmm. Um, my first thought though was like, all these young people are on this train, and how did they afford to get these tickets if like these were so expensive for like the front area, like the, the first class section?
1: Maybe trust fund kids.
0: That makes sense. <laughs> but yeah um
1: yeah that whole like oh and the whole caste system and how it's like kind of designed to keep everybody in their place and it just felt i don't know it kind of it frustrates me because it it feels too close to real world like the people in the back they're not good enough to have real food. They have to have these protein blocks that are made out of all these insects. Mm-hmm. Oh,
0: yeah. So disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. Looking at the, the trivia section again on IMDb, um, they actually, so the protein blocks, uh, it says here it was made by combining seaweed, sugar, and gelatin oh apparently jamie bell hated it and tilda swinton actually liked it (laughs) wait what's
1: it made out of jello and what else
0: uh seaweed sugar and gelatin
2: ew seaweed
0: yeah and so i guess when if tilda swinton liked it there's that scene where they're eating sushi and curtis hands her the block like oh you eat this i guess she was like all right cool whatever (laughs) yeah I,
2: yeah.
0: Well, it
1: so, you know, something I I often wonder. So I know with when a lot of people eat, um, or when actors eat on camera, they often have to do so many shots of it. So like they often have a spit bucket.
2: Mm-hmm. When
1: actors are smoking on screen, are those fake cigarettes? Is it real?
0: Mm. Are they real? I actually read an article about this a few years ago because I'm a big fan of the show, American Horror Story. Mm -hmm. And for a while, Jessica Lange, who's an older actress, she, she was a regular on that series. Um, and every single season she was in her character would be smoking cigarettes. And I thought like, she can't actually smoking cigarettes. Like this many shots, as you said, like this would kill her. Yeah. Uh, they said that oftentimes it's like a combination of just like medicinal herbs or like stuff that you don't actually breathe in, but that burns really slowly. So like they they might have them like I can't remember what it was, but like seems to really like blow out smoke. It's not actually like cigarette. it's not tobacco, but like it's something else. But yeah, I if I find that article, I'll send it to you because it was like how do actors who don't smoke smoke on screen? Ah, yeah. So, yeah, um, very interesting stuff. Some of these characters actually were not originally um cast for who they were written Uh, sorry some of these roles were played by people who weren't initially thought of when the role was written so for example uh Bong Joon-ho wrote the part of Minister Mason actually for John C. Riley. really and then he wasn't able to do the film and so then Tilda Swinton got the role and he left the lines, though, for Mason being referred to in the masculine form in the script. If you remember at the very beginning, when she's giving her speech about the shoe, and, like, shoes don't belong on your head, shoes belong on your feet, and all that. Um, they hand her the shoe, and they say, seven minutes for your speech, sir. Ah. Even though she's not a... him. So... Yeah, um, so that was interesting. Um, and Jamie Bell's character, Edgar, is actually named after Bong Joon Ho's director friend, Edgar Wright.
1: Oh no way!
0: Yeah. So it's uh, very a lot of a lot of in like internal fun stuff with this movie. Yeah, um, as dark uh-huh. as it was.
1: Tilda Swinton's character felt like some people who exist in our world too. Like she just is, feel like it's the definition of a snake of a person. Like she's yeah. so into Wilford, acting like he is this great, all-knowing person, but then is willing to have him killed. Like it seems like all she cares about is power.
0: Mm-hmm. You know the, she has that whole like speech about you know Wilford is divine wilford is so merciful and then as soon as her life threatens you like don't kill me kill him just don't don't hurt me i'll help you yeah Yeah, and then she
1: say like i'll I'll get you to him and you have to kill him or something like that like she yeah pushing for them to kill wilford
0: yeah already like you know what if you get there you have to kill him
1: yeah Octavia Spencer was also really badass in this movie, too.
0: Yeah. She was great.
1: She's an example of... I often hear people talk about how comedy is actually a lot of times harder than drama. And comedians, comedic actors can often do drama really well. Because I remember the first movie I ever saw her in was Dinner for Schmuck's.
2: Mm.
1: which i know it's it has poor ratings poor reviews i mm. think that movie is hilarious <laughs> i still think that movie is so good mm. have you ever seen it
0: i haven't but right before so as many of our listeners know anthony and i are both grad students um one of the students i supervise before my university our university uh shut down for the rest of the semester online learning with this coronavirus going around two of the students i supervised actually were telling me like all these funny scenes from dinners with dinner dinner with schmucks like you have to see it you have to see it so it's on my social distancing watch list
1: it's on netflix you have no excuse you gotta check it out all right it was and it was uh it's a remake an american remake of a french film that came out in 1998 gotcha of uh, Dinner day Cons, I think. Gotcha. But uh, her character, she plays this psychic who mm-hmm. can talk to animals. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and so they're—it's you know, called Dinner for Schmucks. They're all at this dinner, and she's like connecting with the lobster that they're about to eat. It's really <laughs> fun.
0: Yeah, she she plays this like very... like, nurturing mother. We see her with Timmy. And she also like... It's it's a bit of a trope but I think it's done really well here where she's like... You know, like talking to Curtis before they do the actual start the revolution. Like, she's like, come on, you gotta let me go. You know I can fight twice as good as any of these soldiers here. Like... And... She lasts the longest. She gets to um, the kind of sauna car where a kind of like second to last battle happens. Yeah. The... Really, really strong character, really, really well written. Um, and her and the redheaded guy, who I'm blanking, I don't think we got his name, um, but like they're there to get their kids back. And I love when they're in the classroom and the one kid in the back is like, I saw them. It's like, where did they go? Through that door, out that door. It's like, that's how trains work. You have to go forward. Thanks, kid.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's only a limited number oh. of places. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, it... Very, very strange film. Very, yeah. Oh. But yeah. Um, I also like the, going back to Toto's Friends character for a moment, I liked how in the tunnel scene, when they're fighting with the torches, um, one of the, the like, officers... When Gray shows him the "Surrender or Die" tattoo, mm-hmm. he's like, "Surrender, surrender!" And then he looks at Tilda Swinton's care he looks at Mason, and is like, "Surrender or he'll kill me!" And she's like, "What me? Well, I don't, I don't care. I'm not you." Yeah, just does not care, no concern. Yeah. But
1: then later on, when Curtis has her, she makes them all surrender.
0: Yep. It's Yeah. It's uh it's it's a very weird, very I, I will say this movie I feel like is an acquired taste. Like I've I've shown this movie to people in the past and they've been like, Oh, this was great. And others were like, Well that was that was a movie. I'm never gonna watch <laughs> that again. So yeah. yeah, it's
1: so dark. Mhm. it's one that I definitely won't revisit often but it was mm-hmm. so good and I was in the whole time
0: yeah it definitely is one of those movies where it it grabs right at the start and like just keeps the momentum up it never really slow it had the slower moments with like the conversation between Gilliam and Curtis and at the end with Curtis and Wilford but yeah, it never really stops the momentum; just keeps going. Yeah, um, I will say the. I know it's supposed to be the planes, the very beginning of the movie, the planes distributing, uh, the CW seven, but I just love that you have these planes flying and just like the jet trip or the, contrails behind it, and the most ominous music is playing. I I. I just had to chuckle when I was rewatching it for this, this episode where it's just like planes flying. And it's like, bum, 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 bum. and I'm like, wow, that is intense music for planes flying. Wow. But, but yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. At the very end, I like seeing the polar bear. Um I made a joke with some friends back in college when I showed this to a few of my friends where at the very end, you see the polar bear kind of look at the camera.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I, I had joked like, wow, that was the weirdest Coke ad I've ever seen.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but like, no, it's, it ends thankfully in like a very like hopeful message of like, oh, life is coming back to the planet. But it, it's very weird. The last two humans, pretty much, are the the two kids, which I think is poetic to a degree. But yeah, it's uh, I don't know. It's it's a good. I think the ending's good, but it's still pretty bleak. Yeah. So, but yeah.
1: Like, are are they going to rebuild society? Is
2: that mm-hmm. idea?
0: Like, are they going to bring it back? Or are they going to just, you know... Will they freeze? Will they be able to get, be able to get food? Yeah, it's just very dark. So. Yeah.
1: Also, are polar bears not very friendly?
0: I, that was my thought as well. That I think these people might... They might die from a polar bear. I was about to say, because that polar bear was pretty close to them. Yeah. Yeah. Um... But I will say the the one thing I love about this movie, apart from the the plot and the story and everything, is the the cinematography in this movie is very, very it's it's interesting because given that it takes place on a train, you only really have so many places you can shoot a car- like shoot um, a scene. Mm-hmm. And you really only have sideways scenes where we're looking at like the The length of a train or or, a train car or the width of a car looking up and down the train. And there's one scene in particular where this really was kind of on display really well where it's at the start of the battle before the water section. Mm -hmm. And you see Chris Evans going from left to right on the screen with his axe and is just like getting all these different like soldiers, and it's just progressing from left to right. And apparently, there's another film by Bong Joon Ho called Mother, where um, I don't know what the plot is exactly, but a similar scene is done where a guy is going from left to right down a hallway. And it's this kind of forward progression. And, like, you very rarely have these very intimate shots other than, like, the scene where they have Mason tied up to the water supply, where it's kind of, like, at an angle to the rest of the train car. Everything else is either forward, like, up and down the train or to the side. Which I think is just really, really cool, given the constraints that even the director gave himself.
1: Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. That scene with the tunnel, I thought that the Curtis and the crew were done.
0: Yeah, it's it's definitely, um, yeah, it's very final, very, uh, yeah. But I, I don't remember this movie ever being in theaters. I don't remember ever seeing, like, trailers for it. But it was recommended to me, actually, by my... Um, roommate, my first year in college, um, was just like, have you heard this movie? You should. It's on Netflix. Go check it out. But yeah, it's it's great. So, yeah.
1: Cool. Well, I'm glad you suggested it, and I'm glad we watched it.
0: Yeah. Um. So, any final thoughts on Snowpiercer?
1: No, just that it was really
0: good. Yeah. Um so out of 10 protein blocks. Oh, what would you what would you give this movie?
1: I would give it 10 protein blocks. It would. 10 out of 10. Oh, wow. So good, yeah.
0: Yeah. I'll have to agree with that. Uh 10 out of 10. Great movie. I mean, very timely message, climate change social commentary um yeah it's great yeah well this has been uh another episode of double a cinema cast um we're really trying to get back to a regular schedule uh with this covid 19 we're at we're at home a lot more so uh we will see what happens with that but yes hopefully we will see uh a lot more episodes coming out here soon or on a more regular basis um, so keep watch for that. Tell your friends about us. Follow us on our social media, on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, we'll be linked in the description. And yeah, uh, thank you again for listening. This has been Double A CinemaCast.
1: Nice!